Have you ever seen the Leaning Tower of Pisa? It's one of those landmark things. It was designed by a man named Bonanno Pisano. It's only eight stories high, 180 feet total from ground up, which really isn't that big. But it took over 200 years to complete. And the reason for that is because after just beginning work on the second story or the second floor, they noticed that it was starting to lean. And so they put the project on pause. And then Italy got caught up in a bunch of wars that took about 100 years And then they came back to it and said, well, after a hundred years, everything's settled out now, so let's just continue. And so they continued building that tower, and it took, uh, you know, much time to do. And the whole time they built, and from the time of completion, the thing continued to move and to lean, uh, you know, forever, basically. It was finished in the year 1272 A.D., And each year after that, until 1989, it continued its lean until they finally determined that it's no longer safe for people to be in it, and they closed it to the public. And for 10 years, they sought to correct the lean by digging out the ground underneath the high side of of, of the base of the tower. They were able to pull it back to a point where it was only 13 feet out of plumb, and they determined it to be safe, and they again opened it up. Uh, to the public. But why is the Leaning Tower of Pisa leaning as it is? The reason is this. Because the foundation is only three feet deep. And it's in unstable substrate soil that it's built upon. A poor foundation is causing a lean, and that lean will someday result in a fall because of the foundation. The Bible talks a lot about the foundation. Jesus said that we're to build our lives upon a good foundation, those that hear his word and keep it so that we aren't swayed, so that we don't lean, and so that one day we don't fall. And the Bible's filled with analogies that point in that way to us that we might build our lives in such a way that they last, that there's good fruit. Now, I find in my observation that Foundation problems seem to be a vulnerability for second-generation Christians. What I mean by that is this. There's a strange thing that happens in the kingdom of God when it comes from the passing of faith from a first generation, that is, those that are converted to the Lord out of the world, out of the lifestyle of sin and separation from God, and the lights are turned on and they become saved. And they know what it is to be in bondage to sin, and then they know what it is to be set free. They know what it is to be in darkness, and then what it is then to be in light and to have the truth of God's word. And there's something that God does in that life that lends itself to a strong foundation. They know what it's like to be in the world, and they don't want to fall or die there. And so their foundation is deep and strong. But when that first generation seeks to hand off their faith to a new generation... The new generation oftentimes doesn't know the pain and the power of the darkness that the first generation was saved out of. And so they're established in truth. They're exhorted to have a good foundation to build their lives upon the rock. But they don't know experientially the pain and the difficulty of living through the world And thus, sometimes there can be cracks in that foundation. And even in the best scenario, it seems like in the second generation, there's always something missing, that it's iron mixed with clay to some degree. And by the third generation, usually 
God has to start over. And we see that happen uh, constantly throughout the scriptures. We see Abraham passing it on to Isaac, but then by Jacob, he had to start over. We see the sons of Jacob. Most of them were pretty godless guys, with the exception of Joseph, and we'll talk about why in just a second. Here's the exception. Here's when a second generation can have a strong foundation like the first. is when suffering in some form is an ingredient in their upbringing or in their experiences within their life. It seems like suffering is an essential ingredient in having a strong foundation within our lives. Now, Solomon doesn't have it. He is passed on. He's a second-generation guy. David experienced God firsthand. God pulled him out of the sheepfold, brought him through hell for 10 years as he ran from Saul, and then lifted him up, raised him up. And David's foundation was deep and strong. But Solomon was brought up with a silver spoon in his mouth. He never had to fight a battle. He never had to go out in war. He never knew the power of darkness. He was brought up essentially by Nathan the prophet. And Solomon will love the Lord, but we're going to see that there are some cracks in his foundation as are evident in our study tonight. So thus far in our study of 1 Kings, we've seen the succession of the kingdom from David now to his son Solomon. There's a leadership shift at the end of chapter 2, and Solomon is now on the throne. We've heard David's last words. We've seen the strength in the establishment of Solomon's authority and his reign. And tonight, we'll begin to see the wisdom of Solomon and also the building of the temple, Lord willing. And so we're in chapter 3, and we begin to see now Solomon in his character and what we can learn through his life. And so chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now Solomon made a treaty with Pharaoh the king of Egypt, and married Pharaoh's daughter. Then he brought her to the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall all around uh, Jerusalem. So we see, first of all, Solomon made an affinity or a treaty with the king of Egypt. There's three things on his agenda right now. He wants to Uh, build his own house. He wants to build the house of the Lord, that is the temple that David uh, had planned and prepared. And he wants to build the wall around Jerusalem that is fortify the city. And somewhere in it, he feels that there's a vulnerability on the southern border, which is where Egypt would be in relationship with Israel. And so he makes a league with the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh at that time, and part of the agreement is that he takes Pharaoh's daughter as his wife, as his bride. This is going to become a bad habit for Solomon uh, that he's going to get, get into, you know. But the reason why they would do that is because if the daughter of the king was married to the king that's in covenant with that king, it would be an assurance to both parties that there will be peace throughout that generation because the king of Egypt is not going to attack Israel when his daughter lives there and Solomon isn't going to put his wife in jeopardy for the sake of uh, going to war with Egypt and it gives a mutual feeling of peace. And so we see the affinity. But then it says, verse 2, that meanwhile the people sacrificed at the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. And so the first verse gives to us a glimpse of Solomon's political affinity and his weakness for women that will become apparent much more later on. And then verse 2 tells us the weakness of the people uh, in Israel at that time and that they were sacrificing at the high places. In Deuteronomy 
chapter 12, um, Moses commanded the people by the Spirit of God. He said, when you come into the land, that is the land of Israel where they live, he said, you shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess served their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images and their gods and destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. But you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for a dwelling place, and you shall go there. And then in verse 13 of the same chapter, uh, same theme, he just reiterates, he says, take heed to yourselves that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every place that you see, but in the place which the Lord chooses in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command you. The pagan peoples would always customarily find the highest points in the land as the place where they would build their groves and the altars. They believed superstitiously that the higher up they were in elevation, the closer they were to God physically and thus spiritually. And thus there was a superstitious aspect to the high place. There was also incorporated with that a little bit of nature worship. It was something about being up there and enjoying the sight and the sound, feeling like God is closer to me here in this place than he is to me in other places. God didn't want his people to have that mentality, that they had to be in a particular place, or that if they were higher up, they would be closer to God because they were closer to the heavens. He wanted them to know that he's with them where they are. But there was still a place they were to bring their sacrifices. And so God would ordain the tabernacle and then later the temple. But there was no temple yet, and the tabernacle was kind of in disarray. It had been moved around a little bit, thus the people sacrificed in high places. That's what we're told. And so now we see uh, in verse 3, as we come now to this portion of Solomon's wisdom, there is a danger that exists for every one of us in having a faulty foundation in our faith in Jesus Christ. And that danger is this, is that you can build on it. Just as they continued to build the leaning tower because they thought, well, by now everything's settled and there'll no longer be a shift in the way things move. You can build on it. And that's what we're going to see happen now. The foundation of Solomon, faulty, but he's going to build on it. God's going to build on it. And we're going to see what happens because of it. And so the occasion of Solomon's wisdom begins in verse 3. First of all, the occasion through which it came. It says that Solomon loved the Lord. Now that's the Holy Ghost telling us that. So that means he did. He had a legitimate and sincere love for God. He wasn't a phony. He was the real thing. He walked in the statutes of his father David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places. Now the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings upon that altar. Now can you imagine that for one moment? A thousand bulls, or a thousand lambs, or a thousand rams. Just picture the sheer magnitude of that offering. How long it would take to prepare all of those things. The mess that would be made in the preparation of it. And then the smell of that barbecue. That would have been awesome. But no doubt this was a huge sacrifice. And we're told here that it was a gesture of Solomon's appreciation for who God was 
and what God had done for him. And now we see God responding to that in verse 5. It says, At Gibeon, the Lord then appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask, what shall I give you? Now, how awesome would that be? For every one of us, if God came to you individually, he had a personal meeting with you, and he just said, hey, it's just me and you. I want to do something for you. You ask me whatever you want. What would you ask for God? Now, no cheating. You can't say, well, what did Solomon ask for? You know? But really, right now, if you could do that, not knowing the story, what would you ask for? The amazing thing to me is that Jesus tells us this very thing. He says, ask, and you will receive. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened unto you. For everyone that asks receives and to them who seek they find. And to him that knocks the door will be opened. He calls us and he tells us to ask. We all have this privilege and responsibility. But what Solomon asks for pleases the Lord. And I think it gives us great insight into understanding how we're to ask as well. Notice how Solomon responds to the request in verse 6. It says, And Solomon said, You have shown great mercy to your servant David my father. Because he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with you. You have continued this great kindness for him, and you have given him a son, that's me, to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore... Give to your servant an understanding heart. Literally in the Hebrew, it's a hearing heart. To judge your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Now, before asking what he asked for, he does two very admirable things. First of all, he looked at the big picture of his life. Past, present, and future. He considered where he came from, who his father was, and the calling that God had for him now that he was in that place, and what he had to do, and what that calling meant for his future, past, present, and future. And second of all, he looked at his life in the context of his calling and not his immediate desire. Every one of us have immediate desires. If I were to ask you what's the most pressing thing right now in your life, I'm sure you could tell me. You might even have a list for me of pressing things in your life. Things that are high on your prayer list in these days. But Solomon, in this time of asking, doesn't go right to the, what do I need right now? But rather, he takes a step back and he says, God, who have you called me to be and what have you called me to do? Why am I on this earth? And if I have a free pass to ask whatever I want, Lord, let it be concerning that greater calling and not just my immediate desire. And so he asks for a hearing heart. What a great thing to pray for. That we would be sensitive to the voice of God and the leading of His Holy Spirit in our lives, that we might be effective in fulfilling the calling that God has for us. That's what Solomon asked for. And look, notice the response of God in verse 10. It says that the speech pleased the Lord, that Solomon had asked this thing. It pleased him. Why? Look at verse 11. Then God said to him, Because you have asked this thing, and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have you asked for riches for yourself, nor have you asked the life of your enemies, but you have asked for yourself understanding to discern justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart, 
so that there has not been anyone like you before you, nor shall any like you arise after you. And I have also given you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the kings all your days. Not only was God pleased, but God granted him his request. And not only did he grant his request, he granted the things that he didn't ask for and didn't request. Now, why did this please the Lord? Very simple. I like the way it says it in the King James, the way God responds. He says this. He says, because you did not ask for yourself. Now, you could pause right there. Whatever it would be. <laughs> you know, he says, because you did not ask for yourself. And then, of course, riches or long life or the life of your enemies. It seems as though from reading the text that that's the prayer that God was used to hearing from people. Because Solomon never mentioned those things once. God mentioned those things. Riches, long life, and the death of their enemies. It seems like every night when God would listen to prayers, those were the top three. God, make me rich. God, I pray for a long life. God, I pray that you would kill my boss. You know, those were the things that God was used to hearing. And when he didn't hear it from Solomon, it pleased him. And God says, hey, you didn't ask for yourself. The center of your prayer was others-centered. You wanted it for them, not for you. The Bible tells us that God is always looking for people to bless. That's true. But God is looking for channels, not cisterns. He's looking for people that he can flow his blessings through, not for those that are simply seeking to contain it to, and keep it for themselves. Now, no matter what the resource is, God is always liberally liberal to supply it to those whose motive and desire is to give it away to others. When Abraham met with God in the door of his tent, when God was on his way to Sodom, God spoke to the two angels that were with him, and he said, Shall I not tell Abraham the thing that I'm going to do, seeing that he will also tell his children? God was motivated to give information because he knew Abraham would give that information on. Here, Solomon, he wants to be a channel of blessing for the people of God. And so God is willing and wanting to pour into Solomon, not just the thing that he's asking, but even the things that he's not asking for, because God sees that Solomon, he's going to be a channel, not a cistern. He's going to pass it on to others. The Apostle Paul teaches us this in the New Testament. He says that those that sow bountifully, they will also reap bountifully. And that's a law with God. That when our desire and our motive in our asking is not that we might just have for ourselves, but that we might be a channel that God might use to reach and touch others, God responds to that prayer. It pleases the Lord. Now, in the process, you get to enjoy the abundance of what flows through you, whether it's wisdom or knowledge or material resources in some regard. Solomon would write later on in his life in the Proverbs, and he would say this. It's Proverbs eleven twenty four. There is one who scatters, yet increases more. That is, he's liberal. He throws it away, but somehow he just keeps getting richer. And there is one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. The generous soul will be made rich, but he, and he who waters will also be watered himself. And that's just a way that God works, is when he sees someone that's willing to channel and give, he blesses them. But God puts a condition upon this blessing that he gives to Solomon. Notice in verse 14. He says, So if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Here's the warning. 
He's saying, Solomon, I'm going to give you all of these things. But if you want to enjoy them, if you want to be around on the planet and you don't want to self-destruct under my blessing hand, then be careful to give heed to my ways, to walk in my statutes and the things that I uh, have told you. It's one thing to have wisdom. It's a total other thing to obey wisdom. Solomon had it, but he wasn't very good at obeying it. He would share it and give it away to others, and he would use it, but he would sin against many of the things that he would counsel others to do. It's going to end up being his demise. Now, amazingly, what did David say to Solomon on his deathbed? He said, Solomon, here's all you got to do. Walk with God, keep his commandments and his ways. Here, God appears to Solomon, and he says, hey, Solomon, there's only one thing you got to do. Keep my word and my commandments and walk with me. David said it, now God said it, and so here's what Solomon's going to do. He's going to take all of the resources that God gives him, the wisdom, the riches, the treasures, the peace that he'll have with his enemies. He's going to take everything that he has, and here's what he's going to do. He's going to go out, and he's going to test and see if what David and what God said is actually true. Is that really where life is in just walking with God and keeping his commands? And he's going to go and try everything he can to try to fill the void in his life and bring success and blessing into his life in some other way than just walking with God and keeping his commandments. Now, there's a positive and a negative that come out of that. The negative is that Solomon's going to self-destruct. The positive is that he wrote it down. (laughs) And that you and I can go through and we can listen to what he has to say and hopefully not repeat the same error. He wrote it down in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's one of my favorite books in the, in the Bible. Um, it's what Solomon wrote. It's a personal testimony of what he did with the resources that God gave to him. And he goes on chapter after chapter talking about all of the things that he tried to fill himself with to find satisfaction in this life. He says, I tried houses and lands and palaces. I made gardens and orchards and vineyards. I gave myself to wine and delicacies and the finer things in life. I brought and imported for myself apes and peacocks and entertainers, clowns. I sought to please myself with mirth and laughter. He said, women, I tried with sexual relationships. I had a thousand wives, 700 concubines, or wives and 300 concubines. And yet he would say with his own mouth that I haven't found one among a thousand that really has what I'm looking for. He says, I obtained everything that my heart desired. I withheld and kept back from myself nothing. And here's the conclusion of the matter. It's in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. Listen to what Solomon says himself. He says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Don't you think it would have been better if he just listened to David and listened to God? He went out on a quest to try to fill himself with anything he could have. And at the end of it all, he said, yep, they were right. If money could satisfy a human being, then it would stand to reason that the richest person in the world would be the happiest person in the world. What do we know about the richest people in the world? Are they truly happy? If sex could satisfy, if it could truly meet the need that man has, And it stands to reason that the prostitute would be the happiest person in the world. But yet you hear the testimony of people that live that lifestyle and you find that that's not the case. If drugs or alcohol or substances that you put in your body could truly satisfy and make you happy, then the junkie would be the happiest person in the world. 
But yet documentary after interview after testimony tells a different story. If the accumulation of things and stuff and wealth and whatever could truly satisfy a person, then the hoarder or the person that has the most stuff would be the happiest person in the world. What we find is that they're never happy because there's never enough. In fact, the person that had the most was once asked, what would it take to truly make you happy? You have it all. And his answer was, just a little bit more. Because that's what happens. The point is this, is that none of those things can satisfy. The only satisfaction that a person can experience in this life is to find themselves living in the will of God for their lives. And when you're in that place, everything else falls into place. Well, Solomon was warned. He disregarded the warning. But then it says in verse 15, Then Solomon awoke, and indeed it had been a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, offered up burnt offerings, offered up peace offerings, and made a great feast for all his servants. We're told that God's encounter with Solomon came in the form of a dream. And that's interesting to note, that God can speak through dreams. That doesn't mean that every dream is a word from the Lord or means something. Sometimes it means you ate too close to bedtime, you know. But God can speak through dreams, and he did uh, here with Solomon in, in this uh, time. So what's the result now? We get a, a little story of Solomon's wisdom played out, verse 16. It says, now two women who were harlots came to the king, and they stood before him. And one woman said, oh, my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house. And I gave birth while she was in the house. Then it happened the third day after I had given birth that this woman also gave birth. And we were together. No one was with us in the house except the two of us in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she laid on him. She rolled over on him. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I rose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was, dead. But when I had examined him in the morning, indeed, he was not my son whom I had born. Then the other woman said, no, but the living one is my son, and the dead one is your son. And the first woman said, no, and they start having an argument in front of the king. But the dead one is your son, and the living one is my son. And thus uh, they spoke before uh, the king. And so the case is presented before Solomon. First of all, in order for these women to even have access to Solomon in this way, means that they tried to settle this case in every lower court within Israel's gate, and they were unsuccessful in doing it. These two women had already been heard by all of the other judges, officers, and princes that Solomon had, and it comes to a point where they're at a standstill. This is a complicated case, and they don't have uh, the solution to the whole thing. There's no witness. There's no DNA testing in those days. They're both prostitutes, so can you really believe what they're saying? It's just her word versus her word, but we're dealing with life here. We're dealing with an innocent child, and one of these two is totally unfit to be a mother, and so this case is serious, as silly as it might seem that these two prostitutes are, uh, are, are arguing. And so now Solomon steps in and he solves the case. Notice verse 23. It says, And the king said, The one says, This is my son who lives, and your son is the dead one. And the other says, No, but your son is the dead one, and my son is the living one. Then the king said, Bring me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king, and the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to one and half to the other. 
Then the woman whose son was living spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son and said, Oh, my Lord, give her the living child and by no means kill him. But the other said, Let him be neither mine nor yours, but divide him. So the king answered and said, Give the first woman the living child and by no means kill him. She is the mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had rendered, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. Notice that the Holy Spirit takes this determination, this judgment that Solomon makes, and he calls it the wisdom of God. And I love what this teaches us about wisdom, and especially the wisdom of God. Wisdom is one of those words that when you hear it, it kind of is a little bit mysterious, isn't it? I mean, when I hear the word wisdom, something in me always pictures Yoda, you know, like a gray-haired 800-year-old sage who has so much experience in life, you know, and so you picture this guy, there's only one in the whole world, and you would be lucky if you ever got access to him, and then you go and you hear him say, hmm. Patience you must have, young Padawan, you know, or something like that. And, and, and he gives you this, this piece of wisdom that, oh, wow, you know, that's so deep. I need to go meditate and think about that, you know. But wisdom is incredibly simple, isn't it? Wisdom is defined as simply the fitting application of knowledge. Knowledge is facts. It's things that we know. Wisdom is applying those facts at the right time in order to have the best outcome possible. That's all that wisdom is. Knowledge is knowing what a tool is. Wisdom is knowing when to use it. And that's uh, essentially wisdom. And, And wisdom is so incredibly simple. The New Testament book of James has a lot to tell us about wisdom. And James says uh, this about the wisdom of God. He defines it further this way. James 3.17. He says, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, meaning it sits right in your heart. Third, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. It's a very simple thing, the wisdom of God is. It takes simple things that everyone knows is true and then applies them at the proper time to obtain a a, a good outcome for all. Everyone knows that no real mother would want to see her son cut in half. Everyone knows that. Solomon didn't break new ground here. He took something that everyone knows and he knew when to apply it. And that's what wisdom uh, does. We also see that wisdom comes from God. God's the one that has the power to bring the knowledge we have to the surface in the time that we need it. It's interesting to me that the Holy Spirit in the Scripture is sometimes called the Spirit of Wisdom. And it's a gift that God gives to some people. He gives wisdom for us to know what to do when we ought to do it. But in order for him to give us that wisdom, he has to have a base of knowledge to work with. That's why it's so imperative for you and I that we know the Scriptures, that we're grounded in the truths of God, that we know what truth is. Because then when God brings simple wisdom into our lives, we can recognize it. We understand it. And it makes sense. It's pure. It's peaceable. It makes sense. It sits right. It's without hypocrisy. It's full of mercy and good fruit. It yields because, hey, that's right. So that's the wisdom of God. And we see that Solomon had it. He had spiritual wisdom. When we get into chapter 4 and we begin to see it played out in the way he administered his government. It says, so King Solomon was king over all Israel. That's the last time... 
That can be said for the rest of the Bible until Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom in Jerusalem. Solomon is the last king that reigned over a unified Israel. After him, it will be divided. It will be Judah to the south and the ten tribes to the north, a divided kingdom. But Solomon reigned over all Israel. And then in verses 2 through 6, it gives us the name of ten of his princes. And I will not torture you by trying to read uh, those names. But basically, these are the ten men that were directly under Solomon's authority in the setting up of his hierarchy or the way that he ran his government, the ones that were closest to him. What I do find interesting is what these men were in relationship to him. First of all, he had men, princes, close counselors that were older and wise, well, I don't know about wiser, but they were older than himself. Some of these men are residual servants of David, his father. They had more experience. They had been around a longer time. He could glean from the things that they had done with David and learned from David and through their time with David. And he wasn't afraid of that. He wasn't afraid to have people close to him that maybe could uh, in some way be intimidating in some way. He also had a friend. If you read that list, you'll see that one of those men was his friend. It's good to have friend. I hope you have a friend in your life. And, And I don't mean that like just a casual acquaintance but one or two or three people in your life that are so close to you that that you can really let your hair down and there's a trust there. And it's good to have those people in your life for accountability, for counsel, and just for sanity, quite frankly, you know. And Solomon had that in his cabinet, the people ruling with him. And then third of all, he had new people, people that we've never read about before and we don't see any relation to anyone in the past as it relates to the Bible. And that's a good thing, to always be looking at who we can bring along and train up and disciple in the things of God. And so these are his princes. Then he gets into his officers in verses 7 all the way through 19. And again, you can read those names uh, if you'd like, but here was their purpose. Here was the purpose of the officers that were underneath the princes, is that they were divided into 12 segments And their job, their duty, was to collect food from those 12 agricultural divisions in order to provide income and sustenance to run the government. So basically, they were the IRS. Their job was to go around and collect uh, from from the people so that Solomon um, would be able to pay his people, and that's the way that he would do it. There's some things I like about uh, Solomon's wisdom in setting up his government the way he does as, as it's uh, ordered here with these princes and then these officers. First of all, it, it, it speaks to us concerning the wisdom of organization and delegation. He was organized. He realized that he couldn't do it all on his own, but that he was going to need a group of people, wise people around him in order to run a nation. Second, delegation that he was going to have to give them something to do and then trust them to do it. And he does it. What he does is he gives them a reasonable quota. He says, hey, you've got to bring in, and we'll read what the numbers are in a couple of verses, this much food every month. And then he lets them go do it. He doesn't say this is how you're going to do it or where you're going to get it from. He says, this is your region. This is how much you've got to bring. Now go get it. And he lets them go get it. And so he delegates and he gives them the responsibility uh, to do it. He doesn't micromanage it. And then the, the other thing I like about this is that by making it a monthly system, every month one of these officers was responsible for bringing in uh, the food for it. Even if the people in that region had to give 100% of their food that month, 
they're still only giving 8.5% of their income. And that's, that's not a bad tax rate. I mean, wouldn't that be nice if that's what our tax rate was in order to run the government in this country? It's like, hey, 8.5% uh, for a region and you, you've got it. Another thing I like about that is this, is that in an agrarian society, which is what this is, it is absolutely impossible for spending to outdo GDP. Solomon cannot possibly ask for more than what the land can produce. It's just great, isn't it? I mean, we are such idiots in this country the way we do money and economy. I mean, we literally pay for things with Chuck E. Cheese tickets. That's, that's all our currency is. I mean, think about it. I'm not going to get off on a tangent on it, but just think about it. Our fiat paper-backed currency, they are Chuck E. Cheese tickets. That's what we pay with, you know. <laughs> it's ridiculous, you know. Um, I'm getting hot under the collar. I'm going to move on. <laughs> you know, verse 20, chapter 4, verse 20, it gives us the conditions of life in Israel under Solomon. It says, Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and rejoicing. In other words, they were uncountable. In other words, they had multiplied in their population and they were basically happy. They were eating, they were drinking, and they were rejoicing. They were good days in Israel. Verse 21, so Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river of Egypt, that is, to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt, and they brought tribute, um, and they served Solomon all the days of his life. Uh, it's actually um, the, the, uh, the borders that he gives there uh, are basically saying that they were enlarged. Then verse 22, so Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores or measures of fine flour and 60 measures of meal. 30 measures uh, would be 279 gallons. So basically, he's, his government is running on 279 gallons of uh, the fine wheat, the fine flour, and then um, the other number there would be uh, 558 gallons a day of the other meal. And so that would be about 16,740 gallons of meal per month. So it's a huge amount. And what it speaks of is the prosperity that, w that existed. God was blessing the land even as he said um, that he would. Verse 23, 10 fatted oxen, 20 oxen from the pastures, and 100 sheep beside deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fatted fowl. For he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river from Tibsa even to Gaza, namely over all the kings on this side of the river, and he had peace on every side all around him. Uh, the, 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 the Tipsa there that it talks about is the ancient city of Thapsacus. And it's in northern Syria, right on the Euphrates River. So if you were to look at a map of Syria today, and if you know where Aleppo is, and you were to head due east from Aleppo until you hit the Euphrates River, that's where Thapsacus is. And he's saying that Solomon reigned from there all the way down through Aza, which is Gaza. And Gaza has its southern border at the river of Egypt. What this is, is a fulfillment of the promise that God gave Abraham in Genesis chapter uh, 15. And it's um, verse 18. God said to Abraham, before, before Abraham even had a son, God said, you will have this land Unto your seed have I given this land from the river of Egypt even unto the great river Euphrates. 
And we see that fulfilled now under the reign of Solomon. And it's the largest the borders of Israel would ever be in their whole time as a, as a sovereign nation. Even to this day, they have not ever been larger than they were under Solomon. And then verse 25 tells us that they had peace. It says that Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan as far as Beersheba, all the days of Solomon, is that there was peace in the land. And so Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. There's another crack in Solomon's foundation. Um, God said in Deuteronomy 17 that the king is not to multiply for himself horses. But Solomon does that, 40,000. In fact, recent excavations in Israel have found some of these stables in Jerusalem. And they found that the hinges for the stable doors were made out of pure gold give you an idea of the opulence and the riches of the, of the land in those days. And it says, in these governors, each man in his month provided food for King Solomon and for all who came to the king's table, there was no lack in their supply. They also brought barley and straw to the proper place for the horses and steeds, each man according to his charge. And God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart like the sand on the seashore. He just had a large heart. He was a good man. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. Now, that's phenomenal to to realize. And let's read on and I'll tell you why. He says, for he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezraite. I know that you're impressed. And he man, we know who he is, Chalcol and Darda, the sons of Mahal, And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. Ethan, the Ezraite, was known in those days as a wise man. He's mentioned other places in Scripture. He actually wrote Psalm 89, so you can read the writing of Ethan. Uh, Heman wrote Psalm 88, so you can read some of his too. But it's remarking how Solomon's wisdom exceeded even those that had the reputation for being wise in those days. It says that he spoke 3,000 Proverbs. We have a couple hundred of them recorded in the book of Proverbs. And his songs were 1,005. He also spoke of trees. He was a dendrologist. From the cedar tree of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He also spoke of animals. He was a zoologist. Of birds. He was an ornithologist. Of creeping things. He was an entomologist. And of fish. He was an ichthyologist. And all men or men of all nations from all kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. God gave Solomon his wisdom. And that's what the Holy Spirit is seeking to point out to us here. The hub for education in the world of those days was Egypt. That's where the great thinkers and scholars and books would be. And by telling us that his wisdom exceeded the wisdom of the Egyptians, it's telling us that he didn't learn what he knew from books. He was a man who had understanding. He would observe. He would see. God would open his understanding to the things that he saw. He would make sense of it to a point where he could apply it to everyday life, so much so that people would come from all over just to hear what Solomon would have to say. So chapter 5. Now Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon because he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father, for Hiram had always loved David. And so we begin now to look at the preparations for the building of the temple. Solomon's wisdom, his kingdom, well-established. Now, his first duty that God had given him to do, which was to build the temple. 
We're told that Hiram was ever a lover of David, a man from Tyre, the land that is modern-day Lebanon to the north of Israel. Hiram was a young man when David was the king, and he heard the stories of David slaying giants and the battles and exploits of the great king of Israel, and he ever loved him. And David had had a league with Hiram himself. And so now Hiram uh, finds out about Solomon. It says that Solomon sent to Hiram saying, you know how my father David could not build a house for the name of the Lord God because of the wars which were fought against him on every side until the Lord put his foes under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor evil occurrence. And behold, I purpose or propose to build a house for the name of the Lord my God as the Lord spoke to my father David, saying, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, he shall build the house for my name. Now therefore command that they cut down cedars for me from Lebanon, and my servants will be with your servants, and I will pay you wages for your servants according to whatever you say, for you know there is none among us who has skill to cut timber like the Sidonians. And so it was when Hiram heard the words of Solomon that he rejoiced greatly. He replies, he says, blessed be the Lord this day, for he has given David a wise son over this great people. Then Hiram sent to Solomon saying, I have considered the message which you sent me, and I will do all you desire concerning the cedar and cypress logs. My servants shall bring them down from Lebanon to the sea, and I will float them in rafts by sea to the place you indicate to me, and I will have them broken apart there, and then you can take them away, and you shall fulfill my desire by giving food for my household. And so this agreement is forged between Solomon and Hiram. Solomon wants cedar. There's no greater wood if you're seeking to build something that is strong and that will last than cedar. And there's no greater cedar than the cedars that were in Lebanon. We read about them constantly in Scripture. And so Solomon asks for cedar and cypress, and Hiram, in return, asks for food. There's famine up in the north, and he wants to be provided for in that way. And so they make this agreement. And so verse 10 says, Then Hiram gave Solomon cedar and cypress logs according to all his desire. And Solomon gave Hiram... 20,000 measures of wheat, that's 186,000 gallons for food for his household, and 20 cores or measures of pressed oil, virgin olive oil, 1,720 gallons, and he gave that to Hiram year by year. So the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he had promised him, and there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty together. And so they figure out where they're going to get the building materials. Now Solomon needs manpower. And that's what he does in verse 13. So King Solomon raised up a labor force out of all Israel. And the labor force was 30,000 men. And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. So they uh, were one month in Lebanon and two months at home. That's a pretty good deal. How would you like that? you know, laborers, construction guys, I would have loved that. Hey, work for a month, then take two off. And it says that Adoniram was in charge of the labor force. So Solomon had 70,000 who carried burdens and 80,000 who quarried stone in the mountains, besides 3,300 from the chiefs of Solomon's deputies who supervised the people who labored in 
the work. Now, this is quite a labor force that Solomon raises up. And we will see that this actually puts a strain upon the people later on towards the end of his life when the succession time comes. They complain about how difficult it was, but they were glad to do it. It was for the name of the Lord. There was blessing in Israel. Things were humming, and and Solomon was capitalizing on the momentum. Verse 17, And the king commanded them to quarry large stones, costly stones, and hewn stones, to lay the foundation of the temple. So Solomon's builders, Hiram's builders, and the Gebelites quarried them, and they prepared timber and stones to build the temple. If you go to Israel today, along the wall of the old city of Jerusalem, by the Damascus gate, there's an opening to Solomon's quarries. You can see that opening. In fact, there's a photograph we have of the opening to that quarry uh, that's there in those days. That's the opening uh, to the quarry that you can go onto. And if you go in there, what you discover is that that, uh, under the whole old city of Jerusalem, it's all hollowed out where the stones were quarried for the foundation stones and then the actual building of the temple. That cavern is 330 feet wide and 650 feet deep. You can see the photograph of what it looks like inside, and you can see the lines where they actually cut the foundation stones for the temple out. And they didn't have the kind of tools that we have in this day. The way they would do it is that they would drill holes according to the dimensions and the size of the rock that they want, and then they would shove some kind of wood into those holes and get it wet. And then the wet wood would expand and it would score the rock along the line between the two holes. And then they would drop the stones, shape them the rest of the way and move them. Now, there's a picture, a third picture, and it is of one of the stones that you can go to today. I actually touched that stone myself in Israel. It's between 17 and 20 feet long. You can see how high it is. It's about 10 feet high and it weighs estimated about 500 tons. There is not a piece of equipment on earth today that can move something that size and that weight. And they have no idea how they moved those stones into the place uh, where they are. But they fit so well on top of each other that you can't even fit a knife blade in between the stones. It's an absolutely mammoth thing uh, that is done uh, there. And and so chapter 6 now, and I'm going to go through this only because we don't read much of it. So don't get nervous. We're almost done with our study. But verse 1 of chapter 6, now that they have quarried, they've obtained materials, now it's time to build. Verse 1. It says, And it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt, That's good for dating. If you're into uh, tracing times and years, that's a landmark right there. In the fourth year of Solomon's reign, so Solomon's been king for four years at this time, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord. Now, verses 2 through 6 give to us the basic dimensions. And if you have the handout that I gave to you or that I, you know, passed out at the beginning of this thing, on the second page you basically can see the layout of what it looked like. That's the general blueprint. It wasn't a huge facility. It was uh, only 90 feet long by 30 feet wide. It was about 2,700 square feet, which is 
kind of the size of a, a, a middle to average or like an average large home, 2,700 square feet. If you, you know, if you know house sizes, you understand that it, it wasn't huge, but it was opulent. There was 3,700, this is estimated by the way, I don't know if anyone can actually qualify, quantify this perfectly, but estimated 3,750 tons of gold incorporated in the building of the house of the Lord. By today's standards, if you do the math, the price of gold today is $1,319. That's the equivalent of $158,280,000,000 worth of gold. And that's just the gold. That doesn't count the labor to hew and then move the stones, any of the other precious stones, the ornate work that was done, the pillars that were uh, crafted by Hiram. None of that is included. That's just the gold. It was opulent and it was huge. There was a porch out front that was 30 by 15. There was windows that ran along the walls and rooms for storage that would also go along the exterior walls. In verse 7, there's an interesting verse. It says that the temple, when it was being built, was built with stone that was finished at the quarry so that no hammer or chisel or any iron tool was heard in the temple while it was being built. I want you to think about that for a minute. You saw that picture a moment ago of the size of those stones that were set in the foundation of the temple. And the rule was those stones were to be set in silence, meaning that any adjustments had to be made or completed at the quarry before they were brought to the temple mount. Everything had to be prefabbed to fit perfectly at the time. It was a sacred place and it was to be done in a sacred way. Now, I find that to be interesting, and I I find it to be very applicable to you and to me. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Peter writes this to us. He says, coming to him, that is Jesus, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Paul would say to the Corinthians that you are the temple of the living God. God the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And you are a living stone that has a place that fits within God's house. But here's the catch. There will be the sound of no tool and there will be no adjustments made to you once you get to the place where you will find your ultimate destination. All of the cutting, shaping, and adjustments are made in the quarry. Guess what? You're in the quarry right now. While we're on this earth, we are being shaped, we're being grinded, we're being cut, we're being formed and fitted for an eternal place that He has for us in heaven. Once we get there, no more adjustments will be made. That might give some insight into maybe some of the things that you're going through tonight. It might give some insight into why there's friction in your marriage or in a relationship or with your boss. Because, you know, there's no better way to get two stones to fit together than to rub them together. (laughs) Sandpaper, you know, one-on-one like that. Oftentimes, God will use the people in our lives as the agents of change to make us fit into his perfect plan for us later on. Everything that he's doing in us now is preparing us for what we will be then. There will be the sound of no tool once we're assembled in our ultimate place, even as there wasn't with them there. Verses 8 through 36 talk about the doors and the stairs, the materials that were stone, cedar, and gold. 
verses uh, and also the opulence. And then verses 37 and 38, just as we draw to a close here. It says this, verse 37. It says, in the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv. Now, watch that. Mark that. Do you see it? It took four years for the foundation to be laid. Verse 38. And in the 11th year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its details and according to all its plans. So he was seven years in building it. So four years it took to lay the foundation and seven years it took then for everything else to happen. All of the ornamental work, all of the beauty and the opulence, the stairs, the doors to be set, everything else only took seven years. But the foundation took four years. Do you know that that's true in our lives as well? As God is seeking to lay a firm foundation for you and me to build our lives upon, it always takes way longer than we think. It took more than one-third of the time of the whole process just to lay the foundation. Nothing was seen. Every day there would be men working. There would be labor. There would be sound. There would be sweat. But to an observer from a distance, they would see that nothing's getting done. There's no structure. There's no building. There's no framing. There's nothing. It's all, there's people, there's motion, but there's nothing. Do you ever feel like that in your Christian life? I've been walking with God for years now, and it just seems like there's nothing happening. I don't feel like he's leading my life. I don't know what his purpose is for my life. I don't feel like I'm falling into his perfect and divine plan. It says that he has foreordained that there's good works for me to walk in them. But I don't feel like I'm walking in those works. Listen, he's laying a foundation. And in order to build something that lasts, sometimes you have to dig really deep. And sometimes the work that's being done in the unseen place, which is the more important work, takes longer than we think. I find it also interesting in this concluding verse that it was in the fourth year of Solomon's reign that he began to build the temple. That means that his own foundation was four years old as well. And I find it noteworthy that he was much more detailed and careful to lay the foundation of God's house than he was his own. There was cracks in his own foundation. One last thing uh, as we close. There's a story, and the story is not in the Bible, but it's rich in the tradition of Israel. It's uh, quoted in in their antiquities and their historians, and it's even referenced in the New Testament, though the story isn't told. And here's what that story is. Is that when they quarried all of the stones for the making of the temple, they were moved over and shipped, and then they were accounted for. And there was one stone as they were going through and checking them off that was different from all of the others. It didn't look right. It didn't seem like it had a place. And they felt as though that stone had been shipped on accident. And they didn't know where it went. And so to get it out of the way, they kicked it off the mountain, rolled it down into the Kidron Valley, and they proceeded to build the temple. Well, they got through, you know, going all through the foundation and then the walls And they realized that one stone was missing. It was the chief cornerstone, which, if you don't have a blueprint, is the most important stone. And once you're observing the structure at the end, that's the one that makes sense of all of it. All the measurements and lines have to come off of the chief cornerstone. So if you don't have that, the structure doesn't make sense. And so here they have this structure, but they don't have the cornerstone. And so they send a message to the quarry, and they say, hey, you forgot to send us the chief cornerstone. And the quarry sent back and said, no, we sent it to you. We have it on our list. It's there. 
And so they said, well, where is it? And years had passed, and so they said, hey, wait. And they remembered the stone that had been thrown into the Kidron Valley. And so they sent, and they went and got it as big and large as whatever it was, and they found that the stone that they had rejected actually was the most important stone of all, the chief cornerstone. Jesus mentions that story. Peter also mentions that story, and Peter says this about it. It's in 1 Peter chapter 2, and it's verses 5 uh, through 7. And let me read it to you. Listen to what Peter says. He says, you, oh, I already read the living stones part. He says, therefore, it also is contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, and now he quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. See, the whole nation of Israel was built as a habitation for God to come into the world. But when he came, when they saw him, they said, he doesn't fit. He's not what we're expecting. We're expecting someone that's going to liberate us from the yoke of Roman authority, and he's not here to do that. We thought he'd be one that would bring in Solomon-like glory and splendor back to our coast, but he's preaching peace and meekness and humility, and he's one who rides upon a donkey, not one who rules with a rod of iron. He wasn't what they were expecting, and so they cast off the very cornerstone itself, the thing that made sense of the rest of their existence. The chief cornerstone was rejected by the builders, but he is the head of the corner. There's many people in their lives that do the same thing today. See, Jesus is the one that makes sense of all of the rest of life for every living person that will ever be. It's Jesus. He is the chief cornerstone. Every other measurement, every other dimension, every other connection is somehow fitted through him. And it isn't until a person receives that cornerstone in their life themselves that life begins to make sense. But so often people, just like those builders, they reject it. They say, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit with what I think God would be like or what God would want for my life. And so they reject the chief cornerstone. They live year after year, like Solomon, trying to fill their lives with things they can never satisfy. And it isn't until a person sets that cornerstone in its place that they then begin to realize this is what life is all about and this is how it all makes sense. And so Solomon, constructing the temple, finishing it 11 years later, and then we'll move on into the rest of Solomon's Acts as we continue our study in 1 Kings next week. Shall we pray together? Father, we thank you so much for the truth of your word. That you give us counsels. You give us light. You give us wisdom. You teach us about yourself. And in the process, you also teach us about ourselves. And Lord, we thank you that we have this glorious privilege of seeing this history. And in it, also seeing ourselves. Observing the wisdom of the ages, but also the wisdom of God in calling and forming us. And in the calling that you had for San, uh, Solomon, Lord, somehow way in the distant reaches of it, Lord, we see our own calling. That you lay in Zion a cornerstone, precious elect, and him that believes will not be ashamed. And tonight, Lord, we ask that you would have your place in our lives as that chief cornerstone the thing that makes sense of everything else. That we would not reject you in any way, but you would have free course. And Lord, for many of us, we feel the digging of that foundation going deeper and deeper. 
But we trust tonight, Lord, that it's only that we not find ourselves leaning three years into the project. So, Lord, we pray tonight that we would be founded, secured, and settled upon the rock of Jesus Christ, that our foundation would be secure and sure, and that we would bear good fruit, lasting fruit, all the days of our life. Thank you, Lord, for your people tonight. Thank you, Lord, that you gave us the grace to get through this, even in this heat. And I pray, Father, that you would just show us your wisdom as we continue to walk with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all